welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. The Word of God this morning is one verse from Psalm 119, verse 68, as we consider the goodness of God. David wrote and declared to the Lord, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. This is God's holy word. May, again, he imprint its truth on our hearts. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, it's a, uh, I'm building a tradition. Even at my age, you can build new traditions. I know. Somebody laugh. Is there something about my age that I need to know about? No, you're exactly right. Yeah. And one of the traditions I've built in the pulpit here for the last few years, I think this is the third year, is that I take a, a special time on Thanksgiving weekend to preach about a dimension of who God is that I'm thankful for. Uh, The dimensions of who God is transcend situations. They overcome and outlast problems. No matter what Thanksgiving events I've experienced, when I tune my mind to the unchanging God, my whole perspective alters and is uplifted. So this is really a preaching that comes from my personal devotional life. And today I want to just speak about the true goodness of God. COVID is a time when people experience loss. That loss can be serious. Perhaps some of you know of individuals who have uh, lost their lives due to complications with COVID or a family member. Uh, who is no longer with us for that reason. That is a serious loss in this season of time. But the greater burden of losses are the simple ones. The losses of the simple experiences of the goodness and enjoyability of everyday life that have been hampered by the restrictions and the limitations that we live with right now. You can't go to that special little spot right now to have that signature kind of tea that you buy there and to make that your meeting place with that special friend in your life. You want to, but that simple goodness you can't have. Some dimension of life every day seems to be a little held back from us. These collect over time. They create a a silent burden. And if we're not careful, a moaning irritation about what's going on in this season. And some of these things can gather together onto the normal stresses of life. You've noticed they haven't taken a vacation. Our normal illnesses, our normal financial struggles, our normal battles with our kids, and our own fallenness doesn't take a holiday. So these times, which are normally difficult, are extraordinarily difficult. And many times people struggle to hold on to dimensions of their faith in times like these. 
Maybe you know someone who's struggling to hold on to their faith right now because of a simple or a serious loss in this season. Maybe that somebody is you, and that's okay. This is a great time to be here or to be watching because the encouragement from the Word of God that I hope you get could turn that struggle around. The goodness of God is something that people battle over believing, but when they battle through to understanding just how good He is, it's a new faith dimension for them. We always have that choice in difficult times to look further to what the goodness of God really is. Some of us pass the test, others do not. Two stories to illustrate. Uh, somebody that currently hasn't passed the test, but I have hope for him, is somebody who has a name that you might know, uh, was more well-known 10 or 20 years ago, but the name Ted Turner. Some of you are familiar with Ted Turner. A billionaire still. He's hiding out with all the other billionaires in Montana. We drive by him. They own most of the property. Anyway, Ted Turner founded CNN, the, the news network, among other television entities about 20 years ago. was big in media, and he was uh, on the interview circuit all the time. And he was interviewed about a lot of his business acumen, but he was also interviewed because of his personal philosophy about life, which had a big prime factor of rejecting Christianity. And in multiple interviews a number of years ago, Ted Turner went out of his way to bash Christian faith. His most famous phrase in his interviews was, Christianity is for losers. Maybe you remember some of those interviews. He was asked why he was so hot about Christianity, why he was so against it. And he said, because it let me down. He says, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian high school and graduated. I know all about being about the Bible. I know all about Christian churches. In fact, the church that I went to when I was growing up was so gospel-focused, I got saved seven or eight times. I walked the aisle. I knew what it was like to be around Christians, to believe what Christians believe. Notice he always talked about it in the third person. That ought to tell you something. And he said, I, 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 I held to Christian faith until my younger sister got sick with a very rare cancer. So rare, I thought, why was my sister picked out among all the people in the world that could have this rare disease? And he said, for five long years, she suffered. And for five long years, I prayed and I asked the God that I believed in, the Christian God, to end her suffering, to heal her disease, and to let her stay with us. And for five years, she just got sicker and her situation got more painful. And in five years, she died. And I remember around the days of her death and following how I began to lose my faith. And the more I lost it, the better I felt. Ted Turner, what a tragic story. To my knowledge, he hasn't turned around from that loss of faith to this day. Tragedy, difficulty, losses, simple or serious, gathered over a life, lead us to question the goodness of God from our point of view. But the point of view matters. I'll give you a different story of someone who suffered losses. His name is known to none of you. Wasn't known to me until I came across his story. Alan Gardner. You want to talk about a garden variety name. <laughs> Nobody knew or knows today about Alan Gardner. He's not a Ted Turner in our vocabulary. 
I didn't know about him until I looked him up in missionary history. He was a faithful missionary in the mid-1800s to a little island called Picton Island, which is at the southern tip of South America. Nobody was going to places like that in the mid-1800s. Alan Gardner went. He lived a solitary life. He experienced many physical difficulties and hardships reaching that little island. He was there for a number of years, but he died young at the age of 57 in 1851. He died of the disease and the starvation and the mistreatment from the people he was seeking to reach, the violent mistreatment, in 1851 alone on Picton Island. He was so far into the island and and that place was so hard to get to that it took quite a while for his death to be known or heard about and his body to be found. They sent a search party in and they found his body and by his body was his diary laying next to him. It bore the record of hunger and thirst and wounds from his uh, sufferings and loneliness. The last entry in his little diary was written in such a shaky hand that you could hardly read it. He was in the last stages of starvation and consciousness. These are the last words of Alan Gardner. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. That's otherworldly. How could someone who endured physical suffering, physical attacks, persecution, hunger, Uh, deprivation, loneliness, and ultimately non-success reaching a people for Christ who lived a life of that kind of agony, that kind of loneliness. Could he write in his last moments, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Perspective. Ted Turner collapsed in his faith because he had an understanding that he wrote in his language about if God is good, this is what God should do. Alan Gardner lived in triumph in the midst of greater suffering because he didn't have an expectation of the goodness of God. He had an acceptance that God simply is good. He is good in who he is. He is good in what he does. Though I cannot translate his goodness in my terms, though what my experience looks like is the exact opposite of what I would think would be good, my God is so great and so exalted, so in a, so living in a plane higher than I can ever touch, that he is good enough to trust. And what he believes is good is good enough for me. And he was given a spirit of being overwhelmed with it. What a dimension of power in life and in battle. And my friend, you and I will live that kind of life and that kind of battle. And as the days emerge, our battles will grow deeper. I don't think any thoughtful Christian thinks otherwise. You and I need to be grounded more than ever in the goodness of God beyond what we see to what we know. And that's what we'll be talking about today. I'm going to do two simple things with the scripture. I'm going to show you the portrait of God's goodness that is portrayed in the word of God. And then I'll end with a short understanding of the purpose of it all. Our response, our proper response to the goodness of God. I warn you in advance, the goodness of God described in scripture is far greater, but also far different than our current version. I discovered this in my study. I was mightily corrected when I thought what God's goodness was collided with what the scripture says God's goodness is. 
Now, where do you get started on a study this broad? I'll tell you right now, if you take that thick thing called a concordance that your grandparents gave you and you start looking for all the Bible verses on God's goodness or how God is good, you'll have a very full study ahead of you. I know I did when I first studied this. Hours of going through the scripture. I'm not going to do that today, although we'll touch on a lot. I'm going to take you to one key keynote verse in the scripture. It's the shortest statement about God's goodness you can find, Psalm 119.68, but it is also the fullest statement, God's word. 119.68 of the Psalms, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Just focus on the first phrase or the first sentence, rather. You are good and do good. That's the greatest statement on the goodness of God and the word of God. It captures everything but it bears a lifetime of study. Amazing. It talks, obviously, as you pick the phrase apart, you are good and you do good. There's two separate dimensions to the goodness of God that the scripture wants us to see. God is good in who he is, and he's good in what he does. Notice, he is good as he is, not as we expect him to be. And he is good in what he does, not what we expect him to do. You've got to take your own impressions of God and put them under the word of God today. And you will find a blessing in the doing of that. The goodness of God. Did you know that the original Saxon meaning of our English word God comes from the old Saxon word good? People as believers have connected goodness with the God of the Bible since we've been talking about God. But the idea of goodness, like I said, is bigger than our idea. It's different. Most of the time when we think about God being good, we think about the fact that that means that he doesn't sin, that he's morally good. Well, that's true about God. But that's actually captured under a different attribute of God. That's more captured under the attribute of his righteousness. He always does right. He is unaffected by sin. He is untainted by sin. He is righteous. He's morally good. It's part of God's goodness, but there's more. It's a bigger idea. It's the idea that I studied in Scripture that God is the best in personhood. He is the most ideal person you could ever imagine, the most perfect and excellent person in all the universe. He is perfect. He's ideal. He's excellent. He's bigger than just being morally good and without sin. He's bigger than just being kind and merciful. There is more. It all comes from a God who is perfect in his person. He cannot conceive of doing evil, and everything he does is right, even though sometimes it looks like evil. This is the brain-bending dimension of Bible study. This is where Ted Turner had his downfall. He decided God was good only when God was good on terms he could understand. We've got to set that aside. God has a bigger story to tell. He's good not in the sense that he just does kind things, but he's the best person in the universe. He's the only ideal person in the universe. He's excellent. I'd use the word perfect, and that's what I'll use in my teaching. So often today we have a little phrase among us, especially when a good thing has happened, and from our perspective, when somebody's in the middle of a blessing and we're celebrating with them as Christians, what do we descend? We, we, we have a little saying, don't we? You can say it with me. God is good all the time. Now, that's true. 
Now, it's funny that we don't say that when bad things happen. (laughs) Usually we celebrate it when the blessing is obvious, even to our puny little idea of what good ought to be. I'll give you a better biblical translation of that phrase. God is perfect all the time. You see, that'll fit any situation. It'll fit those wonderful moments of blessing when a prayer has been answered and we're there to celebrate, but it'll also fit those confusing times when what we thought God would do turned out to be not, not to be something God did do. And we're wrestling over how to live with this. Oh no, you can still say God is perfect all the time. What may even seem like bad to you is a perfectly designed event in your life. More on that later. But I'll just use the phrase, God's perfect, and look at the two dimensions of Psalm 196. He is perfect, first of all, in his, good, in his person. You are good. Perfect in all that he is. He's perfect. He never acts in any dimension that's not holy or perfect or righteous. He went out of his way to show this in the Bible. There was a place in Exodus, and back, we won't spend much time there, but Exodus 33 where Moses asked to see God's glory. You remember the story? He had, been, he had led the, the nation of Israel out of bondage to Egypt some months before it hadn't been long. They'd seen 10 great miracles uh, against the Egyptians, and they'd been led across the Red Sea. Remember all the great stories? They were led by a pillar of cloud through the desert by night or by day and a pillar of fire by night. God had provided for them, but God was doing it on his terms. They began to grumble against him. That was the first sign of trouble. But then God sent Moses, brought Moses up into his presence on the Mount Sinai to give him the Ten Commandments as a way of beginning a relationship with his people to show them how they could walk in his ways. While Moses is gone, you know the story. The people did exactly the opposite. They descended into immorality. They they, they essentially forgot that Moses was ever coming back. They abandoned the God of their life and their rescue overnight. They made a golden calf, got into idol worship, all the sexual morality that that involved, and they were way on the A train away from God. Moses sees this. He's outraged. God and he have a discussion. God is grieved. But God says, I'm going to continue to be with this people. My righteous nature says I ought to judge them and forget them, but I'm going to continue to commit myself to them because I've chosen them. They're my people. And so he invites Moses up on the mountain to get a second copy of the Ten Commandments. You remember that? And Moses is there, and he basically has a leadership crisis with God, and he says, God, now I've really seen how wicked and useless these people are. And I know that you still want me to lead them, but I don't know if I can. They're too wicked and rebellious for me to lead. I've lost my heart as a leader already. How can I do this if if you don't go with me? God comforts Moses and says, I am going to go with you. My presence will go with you. But that wasn't enough for Moses. Moses said, I have to see a visible demonstration of your glory. I need even more evidence, more assurance And so he says in Exodus 33, 18, please show me your glory. Show me your greatness. Kind of wanted another light and power show like the one he got for the first commandments were delivered. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. When 
Moses, notice this, asked for glory. What does God say? I will make all of my goodness pass before you. If goodness is perfection, God is saying, I'll show you my perfection. It's so perfect and overwhelming, you can't see it with full eyes, so I'm going to put you in a cleft in the rock. Remember this story? I'll put you in the hidden place in the rock. I'll put my hand over you, as it were, so you'll only see the trailing edges of my perfection as they pass by. And sure enough, the next day, Moses went up to the place on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, Exodus 34. And in verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And when God wanted to show his glory, look what he showed. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you know what we call that? God's goodness. So the Bible says that God is perfect. He is ideal. He is excellent. He is without flaw. And when God chose to show Moses his glory, the greatest dimension of his glory was his goodness. I don't know how to translate that for you, except for the fact that behind all of what God does is his goodness. It seems to be a shadow attribute that moves behind and moves through all that he does. God is ideal. He's perfect. He is good in all that he does, perfect in all that he is. You can't expect God to do anything that doesn't reflect his goodness. You say, how about judgment? He says in the, in the last part of verse 7, he's also will by no means clear the guilty, and he'll visit the iniquities of the fathers on the children. God will judge sin. How is that good? It's good in every way. His holiness has to judge sin. And you, with your limited new heart, know that it has to be judged. And you couldn't adore and worship a God that wouldn't judge sin. Because if he didn't judge wickedness, he wouldn't be truly good. You know, even in your limited moral frame, that that has to be so. So God is good in all that he is When God decided to show his glory, the first thing he rolled out to Moses was his goodness. Just, I didn't even know how to preach that. That just hit me with such strength when I studied it this week. There is goodness behind all that God is. Every dimension. Some theologians have touched on this. Dr. Thiessen and his the systematic theologian from Dallas Seminary simply said, God is an ideal person. He's just an ideal person, and his goodness shines behind all that he does. A.W. Pink has written a lot on the attributes of God. I don't agree with Dr. Pink on all that he may teach or believe, but boy, his work on the attributes of God just drills layer by layer. It's so profound. He said, the goodness of God refers to the perfection of his nature. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. First John 1, 5. There's an absolute perfection in God's nature such that nothing is defective about it. Nothing can be added to it to make it better. He's not only the greatest of all beings, he's the best. He's everything we would expect from a perfect God, but his goodness shines behind all of it. His drive to show mercy, his drive to show tenderness. Richard Strauss, a former pastor and Christian thinker, described it this way. 
When we say that God is altogether good in Psalm 119.68, we mean that he is ideal and perfect and excellent in all that he does. And because of this, he is also the source and fountain of all good. He does good things. He extends his goodness to others. It is his nature as the perfect God to be kind. Think about that. It is the nature of God to be kind. So many of us don't even believe that today because we're captured like Ted Turner was in our experience of what we expected. By faith, hold on to the fact that it is God's very nature to be kind. He does good things. Dr. Strauss says it is is his nature to be kind, to be generous, to be benevolent, to demonstrate goodwill toward people, and to take great pleasure in making them happy. Because God is good, he wants us to have what we need for our happiness, and he sees that it is available to us. Every good thing we now enjoy or ever hope to enjoy flows from him, and no good thing has ever existed or ever will exist that does not come from his good hand. I'm telling you, you can't preach the goodness of God enough in this challenge time. He is perfect. He's ideal, he's excellent, and behind all that he is and does, even the difficult things, even the severity of his judgment, is goodness. So important to see it. God is good in who he is. Secondly, under this whole idea of the portrait of the God of the Bible who is good. He's good in all that he does. He's perfect in all that he does. Second phrase of Psalm 68, you are good and you do good. Two realms, the Bible teaches that God illustrates his goodness to the entire world. The first is the realm of creation. Dr. Pink again says this, and God saw everything that he had made. This is Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very, can you complete it? Good. So from the very beginning of his story with us, in Genesis 1.31, God declares something over what he has done. It is that he does good things and that his creation itself is an endless, timeless reminder of how good God has been. Even though creation is under a curse today, it is still a mirror of God's goodness. It's nothing like it was, but even in its cursed state and declining state, it is still a marvel of goodness. And by the way, if you're a believer, it's not what it's going to be. We're going to be in a new heavens and a new earth. Oh, I can't wait to see God's second act. Whoa, going to be awesome. But creation is the first realm in which God demonstrates his goodness to us. Dr. Pink writes, thus the goodness of God is seen first in creation. The more closely the creation is studied, the more the goodness of its creator is seen. Take the highest of God's earthly creatures, man. Abundant proof in the, in the design of man there is to say with the psalmist in Psalm 139, 14, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works. Everything about the structure of human bodies attests the goodness of their maker. 
Gaze at your hands, he says, and see how suited the design of your hands are to perform their allotted work. Do you ever think about that? Take a look at the design and the intricacies of who you are physically. You cannot believe that that is simply tumbled into reality by the chance collision of atoms and molecules over time. Oh, God has designed you to reflect the fact that he's a good God. How good of the Lord to appoint sleep, he writes, to refresh the wearied body. Did you get a good night's sleep last night? If you're saying yes, do you know that you were perfectly designed by God to experience that? Who but a good God would have ever designed the refreshing cycle of sleep for his creatures? Who but a good God would have designed the circadian rhythms and the sleep cycle? Where do you think that came from? A a chance collision of, of microbes in the universe over eons of time? Or the benevolent hand of God in a created moment when he created Adam and Eve and gave them the gift of sleep? And even though we're under judgment, he's still given that to us. It's the little things. Dr. Pink writes, how loving of him and how good of him to give to the, the, to the eyes eyelids. You ever think about that? You say, Pastor, you're getting weird on me again. Actually, I read this week about leprosy. Now you're saying, Pastor, you're over the edge. <laughs> what are you doing? It's Thanksgiving week and you're reading about leprosy? Well, it so happened and in my daily devotions, I'm slow walking through the Gospel of Luke. And I got to the place where Jesus healed the ten lepers. Remember the story? I preached it to you some months ago. And only one came back and was thankful. And I was wanting to figure out just how mighty a miracle it was and how ungrateful they were. And so I I studied and I went to see what a leper looked like in that time and what lepers look like today. It's a terrible image. You know, limbs falling off because they damage them because you can't feel pain as a leper. Faces distorted, skin bubbling up. But I found out one of the worst curses of being a leper is that the nerve endings to your eyelids get paralyzed and they they cease to function. And so you cannot blink your eyes anymore. This is why many lepers go blind very quickly. Because after a few weeks or months of eyes that can never blink, all this form matter gets into the eye structure and you're blinded simply by being alive. And I put that put my mind to this message, and I thought, God, thank you for the creation and the sustaining of my design so that I have eyelids that work. All of this is a, is a gift from the hand of God. Psalm 33, 5 says, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Think about the created world we live in, the earth as it is. This is a judge system. It's judged by God. God could have taken away all the pleasures and the beauties of the original garden, but he didn't take them all away. We fell under judgment and sin when Adam and Eve fell, and he could have taken all the beautiful colors and flowers and and fruits and, and tastes of food. He could have taken the very experience of taste itself away. And basically, on a cursed earth, we could be living today where every meal every day could be bland oatmeal. You say, that's strange, but no, it's think about it. This is, a part, this is a planet under judgment. The curse fell. Why didn't God take away more than he did? It's because he's a good God. And what he's done in the eons since Adam and Eve fell and the future time in the, in, the, in the far distant future, perhaps, when he makes all this right again and judges it all, we live under judgment. But God has poured so much mercy in with the judgment. He could have done 
He could have taken all the color away in the world when, when sin fell. Don't you think it would have made sense? All the beauties and the, the color, the, the spectrum of colors, and we could be given to live in a cursed world where everything is a functional gray or basic black and white. Did God do that? Could he have? Should he have? Oh yeah, if you understand the depths of sin. Judgment's judgment. But no, he, he, he threads mercy through it all. It's an amazing thing to think about. He could have deprived us of so many blessings, and rightly so, so many comforts, so many pleasures. But no, our time is a time of mixed mercy and judgment. And during our time, the mercy is greater. The Bible says in Acts 17, when Paul preached to a godless culture, he says, God has allowed the seasons and all the goodness you experienced as a sign that he exists and that he loves you and he wants you to turn to him as a God of love and goodness and seek him. He's provided all these things as a living illustration of just how good he is and how powerful he is. And it's designed to cause men to turn to God and repent. What a mercy is in all of this. With comparatively rare exceptions, men and women today experience a far greater number of days of health than they do of sickness and pain. Do you think that's just by coincidence? It's a mercy. God's woven his mercy into a judged world to show them that he's good and they ought to seek him for for his goodness. There's much more creature happiness than creature misery in this world. in the large things and the little things. I mean, this is why the life pleasures that we've lost during COVID affect us so much. The pleasures I listed earlier, being with a special friend at a special place, or whatever life pleasures may have been denied you, seeing a grandchild over the last week may just not have been something that was wise or possible for you. What a simple pleasure that now you understand and value so much more deeply. The life pleasures that we've lost during COVID affect us so much because we've gotten used to simply assuming God's goodness. God is so good, so consistently, that we've, we don't even notice anymore. Do we? Until times come when God works in such a way that we go through a season like we're going through, and it awakens us to the goodness that we've always enjoyed, and now that we're missing some of it, it ought to move us. COVID's an opportunity to think about the goodness of God. Maybe our heart response to COVID should be less frustration and more humility, realizing the goodness that he's shown us that we've so neglected to thank him for and asking God to have mercy and restore that goodness to us again. I continue to be amazed at the prayerlessness of believers, including this believer, during this time of worldwide distress. Whether you think this is an overblown thing or a very real thing, you cannot deny that it's an experience that we're all going through and it's an experience of loss. It is an experience of distress. And I continue to be amazed at the prayerlessness of most of us. Who could deal with this situation more than anyone? Is it a government? Is it a leader? Is it a scientist? Or is it God? It's God. But we so seldom cry out to God for mercy in this time. 
We so seldom cry out for God to end this difficulty and restore mercy and goodness upon us. It's just a sidebar, but I've always wondered. We are so self-dependent as believers in our society. We still think if we had our way, we got this. Oh, really? God is good. He's good in creation. Even when he, fat, he freeze frames our creation like he's doing right now with some of the things in life we've learned, we're more frustrated than humbled. Think about it. I know I did. Well, lastly, the goodness of God is most greatly demonstrated in salvation, isn't it? You think about it. God could have cursed the world utterly and finally and have been fully justified in his righteousness when Adam and Eve collapsed in sin and rebellion. He could have ended it all. But in his sovereign will, he elected to continue and to finish the story as a story of the triumph of his goodness over evil. That's what this whole long universal story of sin is all about. God has allowed it to play in and he will allow it to play out. He'll let it get to its highest point of wickedness and evil and then his goodness will triumph over it and he will have banished evil forever in universal history. And he's going to do it through the wonder of his son. And in the midst of the banishing of evil and the judging of evil and the removing it from the world completely and finally in a time yet to come, in the midst of all that, in his goodness, he's going to gather for himself a people. He's on a rescue mission because he is good. He is saving people because he is good. He is drawing people to Christ in the cross because he is good. He has called out a people for himself over all time that are a believing family that will go into a heaven that he's constructed and a new Jerusalem he's faithfully building because he is good. You're going to be saved forever without a doubt and without any sense that you'll ever lose your salvation because he is good. You'll be with him in an in, in indescribable pleasure and glory and fascination, world without end, amen, because he is, thank you. Salvation is the greatest illustration. In Galatians 4, it says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman and born under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Why did God adopt you into his family? Because you asked him to, because you sought him to, because you were good and deserving. No, he was over it all from beginning to end because he is good. Why is God calling to you today, whether you're here in person physically or whether you're watching online and your start is being stirred with the sense that God must exist and he must be good because of all the creation you see and now the salvation story you hear? And why are you being stirred in your heart to trust Christ in a saving way for the first time in your life? Because God is good. His goodness is arriving in this second in your life. Don't miss it. Oh, he's good in salvation. Why do you think that the largest angelic visitation in the history of the planet to date 
You know, angels are all around us, but they only rarely manifest themselves in physical form, in visible form. And as I study my Bible, I think the biggest angelic visitation to planet Earth, it outruns the appearances to Elijah. It outruns everything else in the Old Testament. The biggest number of angels that ever visibilized, if I can create a word, and you know I will, on the history of the planet, didn't appear to a king, didn't appear to a prophet, didn't appear to an army. They appeared to a few shaking shepherds on a hillside outside Bethlehem in Luke chapter 2. The greatest visitation from physical heaven to physical earth came to declare one thing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Do you know what they came to announce? That God is good. And the greatest expression of his good ever was the bringing of his son. There it is. The gospel and salvation are the greatest demonstrations of the goodness of God. Well, this is the God that we worship. This is the God that we must claim to know as our Savior and Lord. He's far better than you imagine. And one day, we'll begin the eternal journey of discovering endlessly the endless goodness of God. That's called heaven. Well, if I would say, be able to sum up this teaching as I've discovered it, at least at this point in my study, God's goodness means He's the highest and best being there is in all the universe and he's good in all that he is and all that he does. His goodness doesn't mean he will always do what is pleasant or good. From our point of view, this is Ted Turner's trouble. But it means he will always do what is best. And when we get to heaven's side, we'll see it. Two things under the proper response to God's goodness, and I close. Two of many proper responses to God's goodness today. Number one, well, you should recognize that the farther this world goes from God, the farther it gets from good. Let me repeat that. If everything I just taught you about the fall of man, the hopelessness of man, the wickedness of man, and the goodness of God is true, then the farther this world gets from a good God, the farther it gets from good altogether. It cannot figure out good without a God as a reference point. Hear me on this. We're in a cultural battle right now between social leaders who believe that man can be the measure of goodness. Man can decide what is good or not good. And there is no reason for God to ever be entered into the conversation. If you want to talk about the culture war in our world, the social war in our world, the great battle of our times, it's about that. It's about whether man can be a sufficient God to himself or not. It's about whether man can decide what's good or not. It's about whether man can create ultimate good or not. And this world, apart from Christ, is hell-bent on proving that man can stand in the place of God and man gets to determine goodness. Unfortunately, the Bible says that that's a pathway to absolute disaster. Psalm 16, verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What's the Bible say you can figure out about good apart from a relationship with God? Nothing. 
You can't experience good apart from God, and you can't even figure out what is good apart from him. You could never design good. You could never figure out a moral philosophy that's truly good. You could never make decisions that are truly good. You could never guide a society in a way that's truly good. Man can't do it. But our society is hell-bent on trying to prove otherwise because it's a fallen world with a fallen rebel's heart, and a fallen rebel's heart will never believe that it cannot somehow figure out good given the, given the chance apart from God. Psalm 14.1 says it all. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The Hebrew actually ought to be translated this way. No God! It's intense in the Hebrew, and it's a declaration of defiance. It's not just saying, I don't think there's a God. You know, I want to respectfully disagree. I know you have your faith, but there really is no God. It's not that head-shaking kind arrogance. It's a declaration, no God. No, I don't want you in my life. No, I don't want to declare that you exist. No, I don't want your rule in our world. No, I don't want you to tell me that there's an eternity. No, I don't want you to tell me there's a hell without you. No, I don't want you to tell me I'm morally lost. No, I don't want you to tell me about a a Christ on a cross. No, God. Now, that's the declaration of the fallen heart. It's a foolish heart. But look what the scripture next says about what happens. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. What does that tell you about whether man is able to discern good on his own? There is none who does good. There will be none who will do anything but abominable deeds. In other words, you separate God from your equation of goodness and your ability to live and think about what goodness is, and you'll never find goodness. You'll just find moral disaster. That's why God has to bring history to a close. Man is on his way to deeper disaster. And because God is good, he's not going to let that disaster deepen beyond a certain point. He brought a solution in his son. And for those who receive him, they will find eternal uh, solutions in heaven. But for those who continue to reject him and defy him and drive the world into deeper wickedness, there will come a time when God says enough. I'm going to end this wickedness and I'm going to end this humanity and I'm going to end this wicked story. The scripture says that God will deal. You may think, well, you're being severe. Well, no, I'm just being direct. Being direct today sounds like you're being severe. I'm just being open and clear about what the Bible says. How ought we to pray for this world? that it figures out a better track of solutions in human organization or human potential or whatever it might be in the human scale of things to make this world a better place, that's a total fantasy. God has said, turn to him. Let him begin by revolutionizing you with the gospel of Jesus Christ and then take that revolutionary message to others. Does the world need better answers from its own mind? No, it needs the God of the scripture. The gospel must come because the farther the world goes from God, the farther it will get from good. Lastly, rejoice in the great goodness of God if you know him. Psalm 106.1 says, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. I love the connection of that last phrase. It tells me that God is good and he will always be good. His steadfast love will endure forever. 
You know, the last couple thousand years haven't just been a time when we found God in a good mood. You ever think about that? You think what history would be like if God was in a good mood and he designed salvation for a couple thousand years, but then he fell into a bad mood and he got into a different mental frame and he said, you know, the salvation thing, eh, enough. I was at that for a while, but these people, no, he is good and his goodness endures forever. I hope he's been good in your life. If you know him, you've discovered the greatest taste of goodness and that's eternal salvation. Stuart Townend wrote a wonderful song some years ago that we've sung here and I close with it. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, won through your selfless love. This, the power of the cross, Son of God slain for us. What a love! What a cost! We stand forgiven at the cross, where God's goodness our lostness man.